And that's where I think it's important to work with somebody who comes from the creative background because they know that sort of gestalt of text and image. How much of a story is told by an image and how we culturally understand an image, and then how much of the story is is steered by a caption or a title or a simple paragraph. And that's a different skill set um, if you're trying to speak briefly. And, you know, when you've got somebody's attention and they said, you've got 10 minutes, what are you going to show me? You have to let a lot of that stuff speak for you. And and whether you show the qualitative and you express the quantitative or you reverse that, you have to be more uh I guess, tactical uh, in how you present to people. You're listening to Relish This, the Purpose Marketing Podcast. Here's your host, Stu Swineford. Hey everybody, Stu here. My guest today is Angela Forster, and she is one of the co-founders of Tiny Studio. She and her business partner, Nancy Rice, have this really cool women-owned business that does a ton of work in the nonprofit space and in the for-profit space. And one of the things that we talked about today, which I think is super important, is the idea of being consistent and just keeping your foot on the gas and letting your creativity kind of drive things. And even when things aren't going as well as you had hoped or as effectively as you might like, there's always opportunity to create. And, and some of the things that come out of that can be super important. Um, we both are in the design world. And so we had some great conversations about opera and and you know, just design in general. Um, I think you're going to love this show and um, hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Hey, Angela, how's how are things today? Um, actually, today's a good day. I'm glad <laughs> I, have the, to hear it. I have the house to myself. Everybody's off and running. So my studio, which has been mostly quiet in a normal year, has become very populated recently. Yeah. Well, I think that's the challenge that a lot of us have been facing in the last couple of years is how to, how to, uh, you know, manage all that. I, my wife and I live in an 800 square foot house or little cabin up in the woods. And, and so we've definitely tried to work through our challenges as I've brought, brought the business home as well. Yeah. What's funny is, uh, Nancy and I are both used to working out of the house because that's how we, we kind of built our business with the idea that we didn't want to have to pay extra for brick and mortar. And that way we could be more generous with nonprofits and, mm -hmm. uh, passion projects, but we're just not used to all this company while we work out of the house. <laughs> right. So, so we've had to do things like buying noise canceling earphones. Cause it, mm -hmm. if you're a parent, that parent neuron in the brain is always paying attention. If you're a pet parent, <laughs> then you're always paying attention to that. So <laughs> having to create a little bubble down the hall and close the door is become a little bit more important these days. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know both of us were wrangling critters here right before our call. Um, <laughs> so it's it's always something, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is why the noise canceling has been key and a really good microphone has saved my bacon as yeah, well. Absolutely. I think technology can be our friend in that regard for sure. Oh, and I come from technology, so I kind of understand the importance. Um, yeah. as, so when COVID hit, I, I was used to having a lot of clients who were in other states. So I was used to video conferencing. I wasn't used to starting a relationship with a video conference. Yeah, it's uh, weird, right? Yeah, that one's definitely been 
a little more challenging because you have to read people's body language differently. And all of a sudden I realized that I had some skills of art directing people on a monitor that came from the studio and, mm-hmm. you know, being in those marketing programs and, uh, you know, con- telling people recommendations of what to wear on camera, what, where to look when you're on camera, how to right. compose when you're on camera. So uh, as we lost a lot of business, tiny studio kind of did a little bit of a hustle and started giving seminars on, um, presentation. And mm-hmm. a lot of our nonprofits started, you know, we started working a lot with them to give them a better presence on monitor. So when they're competing with all these different people for people's attention, they would stand out more and information graphics and getting really solid slideshow or deck or PowerPoint, whatever you want to call it, yeah. became more of a trend. Um, and so I noticed that we're getting more requests for slide presentations and things that accompany that when you're in person, you may not need as a deliverable is becoming more important uh, in this telemediated world. Yeah, it's really funny. Slide presentations used to be a big deal and then they kind of went away, it seems like, for a while. And then, yeah, they've come back come back with a vengeance. Yeah. We actually have a couple of clients who are in the presentation space. So one is Demoflow and they have a really cool software package that allows you to do very seamless transitions between Zoom and and screen sharing and you know sharing of, of multiple things kind of in sequence. Um and uh, it's a it's a really interesting. Uh, they call it a buyer enablement enablement tool, which is a very challenging. Uh, <laughs> they didn't market that well, or they didn't talk to their branding people, did they? <laughs> well, it's a term that hasn't gotten a lot of traction, probably because it's it's a little challenging to say, but that it's starting to get some traction. And so, um, really, kind of coming at it from this idea that you're enabling the buyer and their journey versus the salesperson. Um, you know, obviously. At, at the end of the day, those two, um, you know, desires kind of collide, but, uh, but reframing that conversation from a buyer's perspective is kind of what they're hoping to, to help achieve so that, uh, so that it just, it works more effectively and it en- enables the buyer to understand what's going on in a, in a seamless way. So I didn't intend to, to have, make this a pitch for demo flow, but <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but no, seriously, I'm finding that, uh, People who are, you know, uncomfortable in a in a room where you're interacting with people, then you throw them into a red record button and a microphone, and it's like deer in the headlights, and it's kind of become more of a skill set, like similar to writing your resume, mm-hmm. writing a cover letter, uh, presenting digitally um, seamlessly is becoming even more. Well, it's it's been important for a long time, but now it's becoming imperative as people are putting down different boundaries of wanting to come into an office or not public yeah. space or not. Um, and then simultaneous presentations among different people. Yep. And, you know, I come from the world of visual communications and you can kill an amazing lecture with repetitious, overworded, too many detail slides. <laughs> yeah. So yep. uh, there's a really great book called Zen presentation. I recommend a lot of my clients, especially the nonprofits read ahead of time not to get myself out of the middle, but kind of basically to remind them that a big effective part of communication is knowing when you fill in with a visual and when the vocal takes over or the verbal takes over. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pet peeve of mine. I don't mean to, 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 you know, get off on a, on a tangent here, but uh, a pet peeve of mine has always been 
you know, PowerPoint presentations that either people go crazy with all the effects or they <laughs> just sit there and read them. And it, and it's like, you know, your slides support your, your presentation. It, they aren't your presentation. And, um, and so many times I've been in, in meetings where the, the presenter is just reading the slide to me. And it's like, you know what, I, I can read. Why don't, why don't you just kick this over to me and I'll go back to my, uh, desk or wherever it is I want to, would rather be and, and yeah. just read through your presentation as opposed to having you read it to me. That's um, funny because we have a client who wants a quote deck. She's like, I think I've been, I need mm-hmm. a deck. And we're like, well, why do you think you need a deck? She, um, she does, uh, yoga therapy with people experiencing PTSD, okay. addiction. And we were discussing it and it was really important to explain to her that a deck is not a leave behind. Uh, right. a deck is, it should just be your cheat sheets, your bullet points that keep you on topic as you're talking fluidly. You make another one that's your quote digital leave behind that has yeah. all of your notes embedded in it. So when somebody was really kind of curious now is teaching in elementary school and middle school, they're all using slideshows for their for their report projects. And it drives me nuts because just to speak to your effect, they're being inculcated to putting their entire text on these slides. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, good luck when somebody tries to train that out of you. Yeah, it's it's a challenge for sure. I, I think that that good good presentation skills are something that every every business um, person, well, maybe not every, but in many many business situations, whether that's a nonprofit business or or a for profit business, you know, having that opportunity to to really craft that story well and present it well is uh, is a real plus. And that's where I think it's important to work with somebody who comes from the creative background because they know that sort of gestalt of text and image, how much of a story is told by an image and how we culturally understand an image. And then how much of the story is, is steered by a caption or a title or a simple paragraph. And that's a different skill set. Um, if you're trying to speak briefly and you know, when you've got somebody's attention and they said, you've got 10 minutes what are you going to show me? You have to let a lot of that stuff speak for you. Right. And and whether you show the qualitative and you express the quantitative or you reverse that, you have to be more, ta- uh, tact- I guess, tactical uh, in how you present to people. Because yeah, they're absolutely. not they're not idiots. <laughs> you yeah. know, give them a little bit of the story to finish themselves um, and put the dots together. Yeah, absolutely. I think that 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 storytelling is is such a huge component of of you know marketing in general. Um, you know, it, it kind of bridges that gap between communications and marketing, and and it's just really important to be able to very quickly and succinctly hook people in. And you think of you know Hollywood blockbuster type movies, and and you know a lot of them start in the middle of of like something crazy going on, and it, and you're immediately you know, hooked. They, there's not a ton of setup. They just kind of throw you in there, um, into something that's, that is very obviously important. Right. Right. No, speaking, sorry, go on. Oh, and, and then, and then there's ups and downs and, and not being afraid to, to kind of share, um, you know, both sides of that, of that equation that, you know, if you think about a, a really good movie there, there are parts of the movie that are, you know, scary or sad or, or, you know, anxiety producing. And then there are other parts that are celebratory and, and happy and fun and, and creating that up and down flow is, uh, is part of that storytelling process. 
Yeah, so I'm working on a, a poster right now for a, a film, and it's kind of an interesting uh, design brief because it's supposed to look like a film poster for a film that's been produced, but the film has only had one segment to show to investors. Uh-huh. So the audience is not the general public, but the audience are potential investors. And the guy, it, it, it's a film noir. It's supposed to be dark comedy. And they wanted to have the bloody knife, the dead body, like they, like everything on the poster so that it was <laughs> like there was no mystery. And then the words are publish or perish or, and uh-huh. the word deadly. I'm like, okay, you've got this, you just need three elements to finish the sentence. You don't have to spell it out so much because that's strip away at least one of those variables because people will finish in their brain and they want to have that moment intellectually. They want to engage with some of those moments that they have to complete. But if you, you know, it's kind of like bold italics, underline, extra large, yeah. <laughs> to draw a point. Right. Yeah. When you when everything is important, then nothing is important. And, it, and it's yeah. the idea of of you know bringing everything above the fold. And and it's just like, well, no, we need to focus on one one thing because that's about how much attention span people have right now. And that's what I, I like to t- discuss with clients is well, what is the very first thing you need to engage? And then we do as a designer look at the next thing and then the third thing. But if the title is as big as the subtitle is as big as the picture is as big as the logo. There's no priority of reading and there's no discovery that occurs. Yeah. You don't give people the opportunity to breathe. It's just all right out in front shouting at you. And, and that's, that doesn't give them the opportunity to absorb any of it and figure out which part they really need to pay attention to. And to play devil's advocate, I would say, if you're going to be that loud and bombastic and in your face, make it a message to the right audience and be really mindful of what's your message and who's your audience and what are you trying to achieve? Because yeah. all those call to actions are different. So if you're trying to get people to wake up to an inequality or something, then maybe I do want everything crashing out of the page at once or mm-hmm. or off the film at once to kind of just say, this can't happen anymore. Or maybe I'm trying to get people to come to the same conclusion I'm coming. So I'm going to take them down the garden path to a certain entrance. Well, then I'll be a little bit more mindful and thoughtful and um maybe a little more subtle in my design approach yeah yeah it's it's design's an amazing thing so tell us tell us a little bit more about what what you guys are what you are up to there at tiny studio okay well tiny studio is we're really tiny (laughs) we used to be a collective but for lots of reasons we lost the person who was really more of a production person, the person that was really more of a PR person. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, Nancy and I were able to become a little bit more uh, precise in what we offered, and we've become a lot more powerful as a result. So Nancy comes from more of a print background, so marketing brochures, book design, letterhead, um, and things that wouldn't typically go to print, and she's redefined herself and used COVID as a way to re-educate to do more digital on-demand printing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody's really giving out brochures anymore, but you still design PDFs that accompany a project or a product. So she works more in that realm. And I tend to, I can cross over with that because I come from a background of working in PBS where the art department did everything, literally. Right. But I tend to position myself more in the world of production, art direction for television, film, video, um, website, website design, uh, set design, and that kind of 
realm, because I come from the world of print as well, I can understand how that gets translated into these other spaces and vice versa. Right. And if you want a cat fight, you throw out a project that's a logo before it goes into either of those spaces and we fight over it like tooth and nail because that's um, every designer's favorite job is a, a logo, I think, because it's the most challenging, difficult and brilliant to solve pr- a problem a designer has. Well, it's certainly the the first thing that most people notice when they engage with any organization or business. It's it's that that brand mark. It's essential. You get that. You get the energy, the culture, the environment, the mood, the lifestyle. All of it captured in this most minor amount of, t- of forms, and that's not easy. Um, but that's that's like I think every designer's best, wonderful, happy place. Um, but it's hard to explain to people why those solutions take so long. And sometimes you get lucky. So don't think that the Nike mark with just being done in two seconds is is re- replicatable. <laughs> it's sure. usually 40, 80, 90 hours of time to get something down to that mark with the color, the placement, the positive negative space and the topography that feels like it's belongs within the culture of that business or that nonprofit. Yeah, Nike's the story that gets dragged out all the time. But, you know, at the end of the day, there was a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot of fortune, (laughs) fortune that went into the timing of that. And, and they were hitting, um, you know, hitting the market with, with a product that was very well accepted where you, you know, one could make the argument that, that perhaps the logo didn't really have a lot to do with the success of that of that product. Yeah, and now we don't even have to explain what Nike means. It's just become so synonymous. I think at one point, 10 years ago, I saw data that uh, the Nike logo was the most popular tattoo on the planet. Okay. I don't know if that's still the... So if you want to talk about somebody and the importance of investing in a logo, <laughs> you think about, well, it's that indelible of a, of a global brand at yeah, this point. it certainly is. Certainly is. So, how do you at Tiny Studio work with non nonprofits? What's what's your way of engaging in in that space? So, Nancy and I engage uh, with nonprofits in two different ways. Uh, we definitely have a policy of giving back to very specifics, and on our sort of books would be women's shelter, children's shelter, uh, literacy programs, um, and ways that organizations support public school, small, smaller nonprofits. So those projects, we will donate time. So we'll say, look, we'll give you 12 hours towards this readathon that you want to create a whole look and feel for because the money is going to go to this literacy program. And so sometimes we'll work very specifically, but we tend to put an hour rate so that it's understood by both parties, the buy-in, the time, the commitment. And we find that that gives the nonprofit uh, a measuring stick. If they say, oh, well, can you start it all over again? You could say, well, we've got two more hours. Is that really how you want to use those last two hours? Right. So we found that it allowed us to be able to put some boundaries on the relationship, but also provide the nonprofit an understanding of how much time goes into certain things. Mm -hmm. And the other way we engage with nonprofits is we have a nonprofit rate. And so that would be more of a, a larger scale nonprofit that typically comes sometimes with grant money and they have a marketing 
aspect of that grant. And we'll definitely reduce our rates to help them accommodate their goals, but those goals will be a little more, um, they'll require more time commitment, more research, more investment, um, and lots of things. And so we've learned to interact with nonprofits by providing them some cues, ways to be more strategic with their money. Mm-hmm. And some of those things would be, hey, before we meet, we talk about this project. Can you come to that meeting with all the background data we will need? Uh, competitors who do that, other nonprofits mm-hmm. who do that, um, other examples. And the more that a nonprofit brings us all that back and research, the easier it is for us to just accommodate their budget. When we get a project, it's impossible for us to be the uh, experts in those fields. We don't, we may have an idea about some of those audiences. We may have an idea about some of those goals, but they know their audience better. They have the data access that tells, tell us, oh, we're trying to target the this group. Well, if they can show us visuals that another nonprofit has or tools another nonprofit uses, then we take that and we say, oh, okay, well, you've saved about 10 hours of time because you've given us what we would have taken mm-hmm. at the time to research. Yeah, absolutely. We actually take that one step further and we have an intake form that collects the initial basic information that we need to get a project started. And that form gets sent out you know, as, as soon as we're going on the project. Um, and we ask that, that it be filled out uh, 48 hours prior to the intake or the kickoff meeting. Um, that way we have a chance to read through it and, and start to do some of that research and start to really look at, um, you know, some of the competitor space or, or, you know, things of that nature and also see where, where they might be missing some things that we need to, to track down, um, during our, our, uh, kickoff call. That is a great, um, you know, that is such a good suggestion. We've, we've met with clients, interviewed them and then given them a design, uh, brief to fill out and they almost always groan and moan. And cause it's kind of along the lines of like a business report, mm-hmm. business plan, mm-hmm. But I love the thought that you're asking them in advance to present that so that you can check out all those. And then you do see the differences. Um, In your intake form, do you ask them who their aspirants are, who their equals are, who they don't approve of? So it depends on the project. Um, If we're doing kind of a strategy first exploration, um, then those would come at a later date. If we were doing, you know, having that roll into a big uh, website project or a big design project. So we ask different questions for different types of projects, but um, ultimately if we can get to the, you know, who are your competitors? um, We do a lot of client interviews actually to try and help get to differentiation and core kind of core statements um, about our our clients. Um, so, you know, we might ask for, for those upfront, um, mostly just to make sure that we're starting to get those collected so that we can actually hit the ground running after the kickoff meeting. You know, it's funny when I was a younger, when I was a younger self, um, I was be so worried about asking questions because I had this, uh, knee jerk fear that it would show a lack in my education or my experience. And, Boy, how wrong I was about 10 years ago. I realized the strength was that I was an expert in some areas, but I couldn't be an expert in everything. And Mm -hmm. by assuming that I needed to be, I excluded some pretty important people in that question inquiry. 
Um, so for example, I was helping a PBS station in Utah design a, a set designed for a public affairs program. Mm-hmm. And I was on site, but even though I'm in Denver, we thought it, the best way to build a team is if I physically flew out there for a weekend, week, not a week, but like a couple of days and met everybody in the studio, saw some of the way they filmed and really learned how they unfolded and how they did things. So I could see how quick a turnover was, or I could see how small or large a studio was. And not just by seeing things on the floor plan, but smelling it, touching it and whatnot. And I ran into a sound engineer and I said, oh, hello, Mr. Sound Engineer. I'm working on a new set. Can I ask you a question? And he said, sure. And I said, well, let me ask you this. They're building the set from scratch. If you had any input, what would be some of the things you'd want me to pay attention to when solving your set? Mm -hmm. And he said, wow, I've never had somebody in the world of visual ask me about sound. I said, well, you got to mic the thing. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like, and, and I know well enough to know that audio is imperative. And he said, oh my God, that's wonderful. Well, I'll tell you what, somebody designed and he went off on this whole story because no one bothered to ask him. Right. Um, Just like the lighting guy. Uh, I said, these are the colors I want to see when they're lit. And he said, oh, if that's the case, then you need to go darker and more saturated. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, I didn't have to come with 100% of that knowledge. Instead, I could invite those people to help with the solution and buy into the solution. Yeah, absolutely. And when you empower those people to be part of that decision making and and feeling like they actually have some ownership in the in the end product, they are, tend to do a better job. Yeah, and I guess that's the difference between when people ask if I'm a decorator or a designer, and I'm like, oh, I'm a designer. We solve problems. We help tell stories. We don't tell people to put more pillows on something. We, you know, it's. Uh, the question is, what are you trying to do? Who are you trying to do it with? And how are you trying to get there? And then we will work with copywriters and photographers and help you achieve that in these other forms. Yeah, it's remarkable how far you can get by who you know. Um, there's a great book called Who Not How. And I think that um, you know many inquisitive people and entrepreneur types tend to leap to the, well, how am I going to get this done? And, and ultimately if we can, you know, remove the how from a a huge chunk of the things that that we come across on a, on a daily basis and just figure out who do we know that could get that done, um, a lot more can, can get accomplished and it, it allows us to stay focused on those things that we are actually the, the who, um, in regard to. So I think that might be a perfect way to interact with nonprofits because they're always thinking about, we can't do that. We can't do that. We have to do it in-house. We have to do it in-house. And and that makes sense if you have skills and talent in-house. But a lot of times when it comes to very specific uh, deliverables, it's the who. You don't have it in-house unless you're talking people who tend to have more than 50 employees. Then they might have an in-house marketing department or communications department or design team. But it, it's very rare that an actual nonprofit Unless it's a design-based nonprofit, you know, Designers Without Borders or something. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too because I think that that we we tend to discount, particularly nonprofits. I think have a really unique opportunity to to leverage the altruism out there um, to get 
somebody on board either at a reduced rate or even even pro bono um and i'm not suggesting that that nonprofits should go out and and try to not pay everybody um but there are opportunities out there to get some people engaged that can either do it more quickly because there's they're more seasoned um so you know that saves time and money and and investment and all of those things or um or they you know they can leverage those opportunities. So one of the things we talked about on the show, actually last, last show was how to look at your corporate partners as a nonprofit and, um, and see if there's opportunity to leverage other assets. So, you know, everyone tends to think of corporate partners as, you know, people who bring money to the table and that's absolutely, you know, the start of that relationship, but they can also bring talent to the, to the table or, um, or a giant mailing list or things like that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. We are working with the city of Englewood. Talk about a nonprofit. I guess I'm not so sure how you would position a city, but we're working with them on a couple of public events and it's imperative to partner as us being tiny studio, once we brought the city on board, then we had um, their ability to get permits, their ability to provide venue, their ability to do all kinds of things that they got excited about. Now we can go to some of the local businesses and say, hey, we're doing this steamroller printmaking event with a touch a truck event with the city to sort of celebrate being a community. And next thing you know, these corporate uh, entities in Englewood are po- ponying up 500 bucks here, 500 bucks there. Right. And it's providing this really great public um, experience. But you, I find when you work with nonprofits, if you just ask for, can you help us? Doesn't really tell the story. If you could say, hey, it's been a rotten year. We're creating a celebratory event that's going to bring families to the community because that's the one thing people polled said they wanted was more outdoor events for families. And here we've created a touch a truck event. And most people don't think about the salvage yard being a public entity. Why why don't you bring on, bring your trucks on over. And next thing you know, we have this great relationship and the city is partnering with people they didn't even know were excited about partnering. Um, Yeah. So it's become, it's become this, it was supposed to just be this simple steamroller printmaking event after school let out on a Friday afternoon at a light rail station. Now the city's just gotten so excited that they're going to have the backhoe, the front hoe, the city sweepers. <laughs> they're going to have like every big machine out there. Right. And, and the steamroller, it's not really a steamroller anymore, is actually going to be doing some printmaking with, uh, with the community. So we're kind that's of excited. Awesome. Oh, it's totally going to be amazing. So yeah, Tiny Studio, that's another way. Actually, I should say we didn't have any work coming in for – a long time. And so we started to create these sort of events mm-hmm. that once money was available, we could pay ourselves back. So we created two events and this is one of the events that we're able to to now enact and pay ourselves for in arrears. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I think being really consistent is certainly an opportunity for for most most businesses and organizations out there. Um and you know, over the last year, I think that that Certainly, we saw in you know in March and April 2020 a real retraction in in people's activities. There was so much uncertainty, and and it's you know it's certainly um, understandable that that people would be really you know slamming on the brakes and and trying to trying to navigate what is a real big unknown. But throughout 
the you know the the rest of the pandemic, and I'm, I'm talking a little bit like it, sort of like it's over, which it certainly is not yet, uh, at least at the time of this recording. Um, but you know, it, it it feels like those organizations who did kind of keep their foot on the gas and at least stay consistent with the with the outreach at the very least. So, you know, maybe you have to cancel some events and, and things of that nature, which is completely understandable, but at least staying consistent with outreach and, and keeping in touch with your donors and letting people know that you're still here and that you care about them and that, you know, there's still things going on and producing good content and valuable information that can help people in really in any way. Um, you know, if, if it's mission aligned, that's great. If it's mission adjacent, that's, that's okay too. Just making sure that you're, you're continuing to try new things and, and, and put stuff out there. Um, you know, that consistency, I think paid off for a lot of, a lot of people in over the last year and year and a half. You know, we, uh, we live in Englewood, Colorado and, uh, when it came time for considering where should we align when we try to figure out new business. And we looked at the Englewood Chamber versus Denver Chamber. And Englewood is 300 and something thousand people. And mm -hmm. we realized we'd have more of an opportunity to leverage our success, which was person-to-person -person relationship versus the $99 logo or the pre-made template right. online. That, like that, What we had to offer was probably better experienced in real time. So we became really involved with the Englewood Chamber of Commerce, long story short. To your point, when COVID hit, they felt sorry for themselves for about, I don't know, a week, three weeks maybe. They had right. to cancel their annual event. And then they began to ask questions of all of us businesses. And then they started to produce content to help all of us businesses. Right. And then they became... They became the go-to if you wanted to know what restaurants were open. They became the go-to if you wanted to figure out what gift cards to buy to help businesses stay in business when they were shuttered. Right. And literally, this nonprofit, small office of two people, board of directors of four, became a leader to the point where the city of Englewood was starting to copy some of their <laughs> their blueprint and then finally had to say, whoa, 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 let's partner because this, right. is, uh, this is not – you steal our ideas, we'll partner together. <laughs> right. And they became even more important for some of us smaller businesses because we don't have a brick and mortar. We mm -hmm. did not qualify for any PPP. And when the chamber and the city came back and interviewed and said, how are you guys doing? We're like, well, we didn't qualify. We're small business. We're two women owned business, but we don't have a brick and mortar design space. We did that so we wouldn't have to prioritize family over Etc. Right. Right. Well, next thing you know, the city partners with the chamber and there's a $2,000 grant for home-based businesses. That's awesome. Yeah. So they were pretty amazing that they were able to do that. And once they partnered with the city, then they had the access to the city's marketing department, which came right. with yep. people who could do social media, Instagram, people who could create videos, people who could do the banners, lay out the the uh, banner ads for Facebook. Yep. So leveraging, like to your point, a couple comments back uh, sometimes that barter is worth so much more than a $200 check. If you can get $5,000 worth of marketing help. Sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And access to that audience. I'm sure the city of Inglewood has a much, much larger audience than any individual, um, you know, business has on, on social media, for, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And, the city has done a really spectacular job of hiring people with a variety of job skill sets. So the minute you say, hey, I want to do like this touch a truck event, 
I show some pictures in my deck, in my slideshow. And next thing you know, all the people in the marketing department just get so giddy because they know there's a story. They can see how photogenic it is. They know how colorful the poster could be. They know how celebratory it can be before it even has a name. And so when we were pitching that project, we went first to the marketing people. Because with their buy-in, I could then go to the city and say, hey, your marketing department said that they could support all accesses. And then we went to the city. And then with the city, we then went to the chamber. And then with the chamber, we then went to local businesses and kind of grew from there. That's uh, a really cool story. I just, I just love how, how, it, how it evolved and blew, blew up kind of in a uh, yeah, good way. It went from supposed to be in the city originally said, why don't you just do it in the driveway of a new restaurant. And I said, because a steamroller needs as much place. We have, we're going to need four by eights that we're going to need three of those. We can do three prints. We'll do a triptych. We'll give it as a gift back to the city. It'll be a zeitgeist of people coming out. And I'm just acting as project art director, production designer on this. And the city's like, well, hey, we've got access to the um, uh, parking lot for the light rail. And if we do it on a Friday, then we can at least provide the driver and we'll cover the insurance. I'm like, are you kidding me? I've got the printmakers. I have the artists. I have all the people I know will get excited about this. I already know that data. And then today I get a note saying, oh, forget Friday. It's gotten too big. Now the police want in. The fire department (laughs) wants in. (laughs) So now we're going to have to do it and we're going to close down this whole street. And I'm like, what? That's awesome. That's really fun. I, I'm excited to hear how that how that turns out. It sounds amazing. Well, well, then I got another project that when COVID hit, like you said, how do you make yourself still valuable? And Tiny Studio didn't have any projects and nobody had money. So we started saying, well, what if we're all, I, I know there's, there's a huge trend for things like TikTok and mm-hmm. Twitch and Instagram and Twitter is the old school still out there. But we were all getting so tired of staring at monitors, especially with those of us watching our kids who we're spending eight hours a day on a computer and we're like, they're not even getting paid for that type of stress. So we started thinking about tiny galleries, much like this one woman out in Seattle has gotten a lot of press on, or I think she's in Portland, Oregon, sorry. And basically instead of a little free library, we're like, what if artists in the school communities could have a gallery that they could show their work so parents don't have to just go online and look at Instagram. Right. I'm so old school. Cause I kind of think that real tactile things are kind of hip. Right. <laughs> So on that project, we got the Museum of Outdoor Art involved. Talk about a great nonprofit. And they're sponsoring and helping sponsor, along with a couple other people, the construction of a three-gallery environment that will be attached to every elementary school in um, Englewood. And then each school gets to curate their own exhibitions and invite their own community of parents and guardians to uh, exhibit. And the STEM teachers are all excited because now they can use their 3D printer and have the kid who gets the best designs have a place to publish and present. Right. So that's another crazy project that we kind of created during COVID so that we would have an opportunity to make a logo. We'd have an opportunity. So we were kind of making projects for ourselves so we Mm -hmm. could learn new, learn some new skills, uh, refresh in some skills, kind of like a musician still needs to practice. If there was no work, we were kind of making work for ourselves. Yeah, we did. We did some similar things where we just kind of looked at the, at the landscape. And it's like, well, I'd rather be busy doing something than, <laughs> than doing nothing. If, if, you know, if I don't have client work right now, then I can, you know, create a podcast or <laughs> write a book. And I did both of those things last year. 
Oh, that's right. So that stemmed also from wanting to be creative and and take an opportunity to learn a new skill or expand on a, a given skill. Yeah, exactly. It was it was mostly a uh, I was having conversations. So the podcast, you know, came out of having conversations with a lot of people, and and maybe you know some of them weren't ready to uh, you know, to take the next step and, and start a project or they didn't have the resources to do that right now, but I'm still having those conversations. And so it's like, well, why don't we put those out there, um, and, and make them available so that other people can learn from them. And it also allows me to kind of hone that craft and, and, you know, continue to, um, to provide some, some benefit for, for others that are, that are struggling. Right. It's so funny because Nancy has had a couple projects come through her door, which were uh, on-demand printing for publishing, book publishing. Mm-hmm. And then they, they disappeared when COVID hit. So she took COVID those first six months. Let's say it's a retreat. We'll call it a retreat. Right. She took that retreat time to focus on uh, that and really just brushing up on some kind of like learning more complicated French verbs. She just delved deeper into Illustrator, which is right. a real nuts and bolts technical skill. And then I, my weakest link was probably topography as a painterly solution. I could use it in a, in a certain lot of ways, very successfully, Mm -hmm. but I just basically spent six months doing hand topography and hand lettering. And, um, yeah, it's just taking that to, to be able to create more of a, a, uh, something with more value to a client that right. I could, even if I wasn't going to hand letter, I would know better about when hand lettering was appropriate for a solution. Right. That way. Right. Just like Nancy became more ta- uh, strategic about being able to tell clients, you know, that's too small of a run. These are the numbers. This is what we cost. Maybe on demand is cost effective at this point. And so we just sort of made, like I said, made projects for ourselves and then also delved a little deeper within our own skill sets. Um, and sit through some tutorials <laughs> yep. and, and attend a few podcasts or uh, attend a few webinars on things. Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. And I think that, like I said, the consistency is, is key and whether, yeah, if you're, you know, if you're a musician, which is certainly a, an industry that got hit pretty hard this last year, um, you know, you still need to practice and you still need to get out there and play music. And and so it was fun to see a lot of those people you know, coming up with really creative ways to, to continue to reach an audience. I spoke with someone, gosh, I can't remember. It, it's been a while since I, since I chatted with them, but one of the things that this, and he, this is a major um, recording artist, but there weren't going to be any concerts. So this artist put on a concert on, on like a gaming program like world of warcraft or something I, I can't remember exactly what it was but it was something so out of the ordinary and it worked and there were like five million people showed up to this to this concert uh early on during the during the onset of the pandemic and um and that was a much wider audience than than they would have been able to you know get in front of in a single event any other way. Um, so it's like really leveraging, um, the ability to scale, um, and, and expand that reach outside of a local, uh, kind of out of the confines of a, of a local situation. So, um, you know, just being creative and, and continuing to, to come up with new ideas and, you know, not all of them are going to be home runs, but if you get enough base base hits, you can, um, you know, you can, you can, Get, get to where you're trying to go. Well, I love when you talk about being creative within your own discipline. Um, I 
I interact a lot with the uh, University of Denver still. I used to be faculty in the School of Art and Art History doing, um, you know, design and mm-hmm. media theory and practice. And I had a student who was graduating. She's, and she was feeling so sorry for herself. What am I going to do? This is hit. I'm just graduating. And I'm like, you're graduating with a degree in creativity. You know, you just got a double major in theater and film. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is life, you know, <laughs> this is, if this is our World War II, we've got it much better. You still can produce, you still can create content, you still can develop your portfolio, be creative, you know, because I was seeing things like simultaneous broadcasts of concerts live from the Milan for Easter, um, mm-hmm. the Milan Cathedral and, and things like that. And so, you know, about a, two months later, she sent me a nice note saying, thank you for kicking me in the rear. I was able to put together this, this, and this, and this. And now I am working in Iceland in a, you know, an animation department or something. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I, know, I was like, take me with you. <laughs> uh, that sounds fantastic. I, I just remember back before, you know, several years ago, um, the Met Opera recognized that they had an opportunity to reach a much broader audience. And so they started recording and broadcasting live shows yeah. in theaters. And, and so, the, the fact that they were doing that, um, you know, obviously additional things occurred that, that pre- prevented that from continuing to happen, I guess, during the, during the pandemic, but, but they did switch that to a Met channel where you could actually go and, and watch pre, you know, watch recorded, uh, performances and, you know, just that ability to scale. I mean, I know my wife and I went to a, a bunch of those and that's, that's just revenue that, um, you know, that the Met they're putting on the performance anyway. It's probably not that much more uh, expensive for them to to go ahead and 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 shoot it, um, and then just get it out there in you know in a wider wider uh, distribution channel. Yeah. No. So now I'm going to go totally non sequitur and say, as a person from the world of uh, TV and film, or at least as an art director, holy cow, those poor um, sopranos and altos—they're now having to learn how to act. Because before when the audience was fixed and the frame yep. was fixed and the distances were such, it didn't matter if you were attractive or not, or if you looked sad or joyful, you just had to sing with those inflections. Well, now the camera's up your nose <laughs> and you're in HD. I'm wondering how that's going to change uh, the character of what it means to be an opera performer. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've seen live opera in person as well as, as um, you know, broadcast and yeah, and I don't know. I don't know if if I think that it's just changed a lot in general. I mean, if you're close to the stage, you're not wanting to just watch someone, you know, sing. You're wanting wanting to watch them do other things at the same time. And so I think it has evolved as a, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to go back and look at at um, you know opera from from thirty years ago or something and see if it if it has changed a lot. Right. How the the because technology is constantly changing the way we create visuals and the way we create stories. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm curious about is uh, what aspects that we have used to accommodate that maybe have benefits will stay and those that were not so beneficial will disappear mm-hmm. or will they be put in place of? So something, for example, telemedicine. Is mm-hmm. it a good idea? No. There's <laughs> the You can't control your lighting. You can't control the video. How is it? medical professional is supposed to assess certain degrees. I see it as triage, you know, like the, when you call the nurse line and he, right. he or she says, oh, you should go in. I could see that. But actually having a physician diagnosed via that, I don't know that that works. 
but me working on teams um, across time zones with uh, video and the ability to quickly on a dime share my my monitor, mm-hmm. well, that prevents me from having to fly over to Singapore or, you know, there's all these ways that ecologically makes more sense. Um, yeah, for sure. Footprint makes more sense. And then also just quality of life makes more sense. So I'll be kind of curious in the world of marketing, how, what, what goes forward from this point on, just like mm-hmm. after World War II, ballet came back, uh, symphonies came back, all the things that were destroyed and obliterated came back. Right. Live performances, live everything. So I'm kind of keeping an eye on that. Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting few years as we juggle this live um, virtual kind of synergy. And I think one of the challenges that we'll see over the course of the next couple of years is how to hold a live event that has virtual components um, or, or in, you know, in-person and distance components, because, you know, I was actually on a call earlier today and they were, they were talking about an in-person event coming up here this fall. And, and they asked the the group that was on the call, you know, how, you know, how were people feeling about that? And, and some of them were, yeah, you know, all gung-ho and ready to go and want to get back in the in the room with a bunch of other people. And other parts of the audience were a lot less certain about whether or not that was something they wanted to do. Not only did they maybe not want to travel, but they also, you know, maybe didn't want to be, um, you know, in, in proximity uh, to others, you know, at, at that time. Um, yeah, not knowing and, their status. Yeah, and and who knows? But the challenge is how to navigate both of those audiences and 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 not exclude one or the other. Um so how do you put on a live event that that is also compelling um you know remotely uh, or <laughs> you know and and I know that there are a lot of nonprofits that are struggling with that right now because they have this desire to do in-person events again, which I think that that's been their bread and butter of uh, many nonprofits been there has been their bread and butter for years. And, and they want to get back to that because it's what they know, but now they have to navigate that, you know, how do, how do I put on a live event that's fun live and also enables people to participate remotely? You know, I'm, I'm thinking about a couple examples and one thing comes to mind, um, when the city of Englewood uh, law, um, asked all the parents, would you go in person or not? Mm-hmm. 50% said yes, 50% said no. They right. lobbied the teachers, 50% said yes, 50% said no. And they couldn't figure out a way to make home learners interact with classroom learners and the teacher be able to facilitate both. So they split mm-hmm. and they had the online class and they had the in-person class. And I'll be very curious to see as they navigate, are there events? Can you make a hybrid event or is it more complicated because you have to have two presenters, one who's constantly fielding the questions of the live people? Right. Kind of like, like, uh, wait, wait, don't tell me. You've got people calling in. You've got people sending in texts. Well, they have a whole department monitoring and telling when to interrupt the speaker. Um, So it's- it was impossible in education, given the tools of the time, for a teacher in a physical environment to connect with students on monitor. Right. 
And I'm watching the chamber of Englewood do the same thing, just like you had said. 50% said, sure, I'm in the world. I'm comfortable. I'm vaccinated. Other 50% were like, yeah, well, I'm not really comfortable. And then some people were like, I'm out of practice. I just haven't seen big groups of people. I don't Mm -hmm. know how to interact with that. Right. And they haven't been able to figure it out. So I'll be really curious. When you do that, you let me know, Stu. <laughs> when I figure that one out, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll keep you posted. Yeah, please. That's the million dollar idea. My next million dollar idea was going to be drive through art galleries. You like, know, there were one of the guys on our team had performances. He's a he does a, like he does like close up magic, um, so card tricks and yeah. and coin coin tricks and all that kind of stuff. So his. Um, you know, forte is that really, you know, close up kind of interaction. Slide of hand, yeah. And, um, and he and his troop put on a, a, like a drive through, uh, event where people kind of drove up and you could, <laughs> so they stayed in the car and they had different things set up all along this route. And so you got to watch somebody juggle for a while and you drive up and watch oh. James do some magic or, or something from a, a safe distance, but you know, close enough that you could, that you could see it. And, um, and so you kind of just drove down this block and got to see a whole bunch of different things. And, and they did a really neat job of putting together this whole show and experience around that. Oh, um, I love that. Oh yeah. my God. That's so awesome. So we, the city of Englewood did a uh, shadow puppets, an outdoor uh-huh. shadow puppet, but, I turned my carport into, um, I must be a frustrated art director because I turned my carport into all kinds of things that were one way in, one way out. Uh But it never occurred to me to do magic tricks. That would have been brilliant. We've done art openings where people were allowed in one way out the other. We've done Uh craft sales to raise money for a local nonprofit shelter. Um, But a magic trick, that's awesome. So you have different stations. Yeah. 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 Well, just think of like all of our experiences are just going to become the piggly wiggly of, of <laughs> uh, whatever. <laughs> we'll just go in, go in one door and, and march our way through and go out the, go out the other door. We don't need Meow Wolf. We'll yeah. do it ourselves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's interesting. And, and I've seen, you know, I've seen people get really creative and that is really, it's been very inspiring um, to me to watch people figure it out and, and, you know, come up with ways to, um, to work within the, the safety protocol, but still be able to, to do something fun. I think that's where being a creative outside of the box thinker, um, it's kind of like the rubber hitting the road right now. Um, and actually speaking of rubber hitting the road, I'm watching the clock and in about 10 minutes, I got to leave to get a kid to piano lessons. Yeah, that's fine. The glamour of working out of the house. But, but seriously, this last year has taught a lot about resilience and creativity and the importance of question asking and being willing to go with a plan A and then be comfortable with a plan B as more information comes out or something changes. Um, And being a creative thinker has probably been one of the three things that got me through this the most. Having a dog and a family were probably the other two. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. I I feel you. I think, you know, I think being creative and, and continuing to fuel that juice and and, um, you know, staying consistent. I think that those are, are three big components. Okay. Well, I'm not sure I answered any great questions for you, Stu, but I really appreciate um, having this conversation. I've, yeah. I appreciate your 
brain. I love brainiacs. That's the one thing in my body that's not falling apart at this point. <laughs> awesome. Well, it was super fun to, to talk with you today. Um, how can people find out more about you and what you guys are doing at Tiny Studio? So we are on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, tinystudiollc.com is our web address, tinystudiollc.com. And, you know, we're trying to figure out the whole social thing. Facebook is just because my mom uses it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Instagram is probably where we're more productive in terms of what's really going on behind the, under the hood, a tiny studio. And there's always something kind of going on because we're both creative people that if there's not a project, we kind of make them for ourselves. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I, I love having these conversations. I really also love action. So if you could have our listeners take any sort of action uh, after after listening to our show today, what would you have them do? Uh, if I had them take action, ooh, you know what? I would have them reach out to a nonprofit of their choice, what, like something that's really near and dear to their heart and figure out what do they have to offer and, and tap that nonprofit and say, hey, I am a really great ex. I would love to donate 20 hours of my time for that, for, for you. How would you like me to do it? I can do this, this, or this. Um, the action would be really engaging yourself because right now we need those personal connections more than ever. And I also try to remind people that people think differently now than if you were raised in the seventies or the eighties, like I was. So you say, is it best to connect with you with LinkedIn or a phone call or a video conference. Um, but I would definitely say right now, nonprofits have taken such a big hit that if you don't have the finances to help them out, then then give them your skill sets. Yeah. And nonprofits could actually turn that around the other direction and, and just reach out to their their audience and see if there are people within their groups that have certain skills that they need uh, some help with. Oh, absolutely. We tell a client that all the time if they're a nonprofit that Yes, we can do this for you, but this would be something that if you have an intern, we could coach an intern to do, yeah. and that would be better for your budget, better use of your your time, but also an intern's time. They need that experience. Yeah. So we're always trying to remind cl- uh, clients to take advantage of who is already in their world that has these offers. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really had a great time talking with you today. I'm excited to hear what's in store for <laughs> Tiny Studio as, as we move forward. And thanks so much for being on the show, Angela. Stu, my absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you inviting me. My and, pleasure. And my microphone, my microphone yeah. and my, my headset. Thank you. <laughs> Have a really great day. You too. Bye. All right, there you have it. Another great episode of Relish This. Thanks for listening. If you would like to learn more about how to apply the audience engagement cycle to expand your organization's mission, there are two things you can do. Right now, you can go to missionuncomfortablebook.com to download a copy of my book. And while you're there, you can get your purpose-driven marketing score to see where you can unearth some gold for your organization. If you'd like to listen to back episodes of the show or sign up to be a guest, go to relishstudio.com slash podcast. That's it for this week. I'll be back next week for another great episode of Relish This.